You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. We're two friends who met while studying in Russia, and we like talking about books so much that we made it into a podcast. And this podcast is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt? What are we getting into this week? This week, we are covering a short story called The Sulfur Spring by Nadezhda Durova. Uh, it was a pleasure to read, I will say, and mm-hmm. a pleasure mm-hmm. to debate for half an hour before we turned on the microphones and started <laughs> recording this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get into this one because I think we both came into the call being like, gosh, you know, we have a lot of notes, a lot of things we're thinking about. I don't know if I have conclusions. And then we did what we usually do and banter for about a half hour and start making conclusions. So I'm excited to, to start, start, start talking about it because there's a lot, there's, there's, there's more to get into here than I initially thought after my first read through, after giving it some thought and, and chatting about it with you. Not only is there more to get into, but there's more being mm. written about it as it turns out yes. as we're speaking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is exciting. Yes, very much so. So before we, we really get into it, because there's a lot to cover here, uh, why? Why cover this author, this story? Um, you know, who is this person? Well, corporate put this episode on the schedule, so we had to, we had to <laughs> cut. This was one that I've been actually looking forward to for a while. This is part of our informal series, I'll say, on us trying to expand what people typically think about in the 19th century in Russian literature, Slavic literature more broadly. And the last episode that in, in my head, I mentally consider it part of the same series mm. uh, we, we covered on the way, a sketch by Voshinskaya, which was a really fun one to talk about. And that's, that's, <laughs> that one still mildly haunts me. I don't know, something about it uh, just kind of stuck <laughs> with me. I, I liked it a lot. Uh, yeah. So this one, we're covering the Sulphur Spring, which in my head, I, I, I wrote this incorrectly the first time. I called it the Silver Spring when I was planning before <laughs> reading it, and I can't get it out of my head. So I have to really think about it when I'm, when I'm saying this. So it's difficult for me. But so Durova was one of the most interesting people probably to live in Russia, uh, in my estimation. Uh, this was not not this particular work, but a lot of her work was praised by Pushkin. Uh, it was published actually by Pushkin in the Contemporary in the mid 1830s. So he spoke really highly of her her memoir writing specifically overall. And you might be wondering, what in the world did she, did this author do that that merits a a memoir? Well, she was the first uh, woman cavalry officer or officer in in ever in the Russian Imperial Army. And she did this basically when she was pretty young. She ran away from home. Things didn't seem to be going well. Uh, In in my research, I didn't come across exactly what was going on. Uh, She married when she was 18, uh, had a son two years later, and then for some unknown reason, as it states, as, as my sources state, as my informant stated, she returned to her family three years later, uh, where it seems she was doomed to become just basically a housekeeper. So she runs away 
and she joins the cavalry disguised as a boy so that she, you know, can join because women could not serve at this time. So she goes on and she writes memoirs about these years, the cavalry maiden, and she has some other memoirs uh, that are praised and she has this sort of relatively brief moment uh, of fame. And even though she, she was first posing as a boy, it was not like a, a well-kept secret, I suppose. Alexander II learned about this, learned that there was women serving in the army, and he was very impressed. And so, uh, he, you know, he transferred her to a, a good regiment in the army and commissioned her under his name, uh, Alexandrov. And so this was kind of the story of what is what it is that is so interesting and so unique. And so not only do we have someone who has a really interesting life, but we also have somebody who has a clear, demonstrable literary talent that is you know, if you're going to be praised by anybody to be praised by Pushkin at this time, I mean, that's amazing. That's wonderful. She, she writes relatively successful for a few years until she just kind of decides, I don't want to write anymore. And so <laughs> uh, she retreats to the provinces and in general is kind of living in relative obscurity until her death in 1866. There are her own memoirs, like I mentioned, that are... Uh, well-read, probably better known than the story that we're going to cover here tonight, but they sort of, uh, from what I could glean, seem to omit certain facts like her marriage and the birth of her son and some things that seem to be relatively major life events, right? Uh, so that's that's interesting. We can We can talk about that because we came across one poorly written online source about her that was just <laughs> laughing up from the from the memoir uh but that's a separate you know kind of debate and so i did briefly uh want to address the sort of w- what is happening with durova now because it's really kind of interesting um there's sort of some some new scholars that are working on kind of like uh, queer studies, trans studies on Durova and kind of looking at more trans-inclusive readings uh, of her work. And so the what I would say is the way that I have presented her here now is kind of the sort of typical depiction of Durova. There is, there is debate, much debate, let's say, uh, continued debate uh, about sort of what this means, how this, uh, I don't know, how this can impact our reading. There's sort of a, a lot of interest in sort of how she was actually gr- grammatically writing, right? You know, what was she using masculine and feminine endings? How how was she doing this? There's a lot of debate on the editorial maybe you could call it interference of sort of steering into this narrative of wow how cool that a that a girl was serving uh you know while dressed as a boy and you know was this really sort of the case or are we playing into are, are we also playing into this narrative uh that has maybe been constructed more artificially than actually was the case but it's hard to come down one way or another i would say at the moment just because there is not a lot of work done but i think it's really great that there is more work being done and i hope that we can bring someone on in the future to talk about it absolutely and if you're interested in kind of engaging with that a little bit we'll be linking an article uh in the show notes which we believe is open access at the very least i can open it from my civilian computer so accessing it so it seems good 
Yeah, yeah. So seems good. So fingers crossed. Uh, it's called the Un in parentheses Making of a Man, Alexander Alexandrov slash Nadezhda Durova by Ruth Averbach. Aver- Averbach. Uh, and that was uh, something we gave a brief look at and uh, we think is worthwhile for anyone in- coming into this to read and consider as they go into considering um, this author's work. Consider considering, please. Yes, consider. Please considering. We like to raise awareness um, that you should be aware of the fact that you should be consider considering. Um, I'll consider it. <laughs> and please do it considerately. But yes, anyway. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about The Sulphur Spring itself, because this is an episode not about the author, but about the, the text. And so this was originally published in 1839, and it's a relatively simple story. You've got a, an officer, a captain, who's in a rural province, who happens to meet a woman who he's friendly with, and he, they chat. Uh, he's been in a particularly uh, sort of dour mood after the um, somewhat unpleasant death of a friend, and they go and they they chat through the night after as she has uh, this friend has just returned from uh, a sulfur spring about eighty versts away, and so she tells this story of oh, there's this curious you know woman I met named Zela who is sort of this. Uh, an orphan who was raised by this this Cheremis village, and, and Cheremis, uh, also known as uh, Mari people or uh, Volga Finns, depending on, on what you talk about. They're uh, um, one of the many ethnic subgroups of what was the 180 something that live in the um, you know the area of the Russian Empire. I think more. I think 180 is from the modern uh, territories of the Russian Federation. I don't know the rough numbers of the Russian Empire. Much larger, I would imagine. But um, so this woman, she happened to notice her while getting going to the spring one morning and is just struck by her beauty and asks about who this who this uh, Zayla is. And you get this sort of uh, unfortunate story of this you know, young orphan who was raised by this village who seemed to be going in a, in a pretty good direction until she was struck by this unfortunate event where she falls in love with this um, but this boy from another village named Duke Moore, who, who was raised in a very similar situation to her. He was also an orphan, uh, but unlike her, where she was sort of raised by the whole village and loved by everyone, he is uh, not quite so loved. It's not quite hated, but, you know, not, not quite brought in in the same way. So he um, ends up being a shepherd for the village, kind of staying far away from the rest of them, uh, which is where, well, he's doing that is how Zayla comes across him. And as it's noted in the story, many of these people do not tend to travel far, especially especially if you don't have a specific purpose, but she's going out to get water. She happens to meet him and they sort of develop this relationship where every morning she goes to get water. He's out there with his flock and they, they spend time together, which continues until um, sort of this bad omen comes to them. There's this um, sort of forest spirit, uh, Keremet, who uh, they, everyone fears. That means part of this, um, part of the tapestry of life here, where although the story mentions they are Christians, uh, they are also holding on to older pre-Christian beliefs, uh, which kind of, we can mention that a little bit later, but that's something you'll see in more, in certain texts talking about the peoples of Russia as kind of the, the Vyaduhi, the two-spirit people uh, with this sort of imposed Orthodox Christianity, along with pre-Christian beliefs often coexisting. So uh, this belief, this change, this brings fear among themselves, among their whole village. And one night they hear this strange sound, which drives Zela sort of into a panic and um, Dukmore tells her to you know, run back to your village. And, and he realizes after he sent her away and he's trying to get his flock all together that what they have heard is actually a bear. And uh, he decides, I'm going to go face this bear in single combat after a, a couple days. And he keeps coming back to the, the spot where they meet every morning to tell her, hey, I'm going to go face down the bear. But uh, she doesn't show up because at this point she's fallen to a feverish state. Uh, and finally, after a week, he decides, well, you know, goodbye. It was good. Good to know you. 
in a much more emotional terms than that. That's just how I would say it. Uh, and <laughs> it sets off to go fight the bear. As you can imagine, it does not go super well for him. Although he does manage to mortally wound the bear, uh, it also kills him. Zayla is struck by this knowledge and runs out into the forest and finds him and stays with his body until other people, other Jeremy's people, come and find them. And from that day forward, she's sort of struck into madness and continues um, really refusing to engage with anyone in any me meaningful way. And really will only go in the morning to go at the water, as she did before, before going to the river to wash her hair for several hours, believing it's covered in blood, the, the blood of Dukmore, where she was laying with him that night. Um, and then this tale continues until the, the two, two people, I should mention that they are, they're not named in this text, the, the two, the uh, Russian officer and, and this woman. And they realize, oh, it's, it's morning. Wow, sorry for taking, <laughs> taking your whole evening. And they said, no, it's fine. It was a good conversation. Um, and the woman says, yeah, it was sad how it ended, though, with um, Zayla you know, passing away. She just dies eventually. The, the captain, sort of a weird mood, uh, you know, leaves the house after, you know, saying, oh, yeah, sorry for staying so long. And that's where we leave it. A relatively simple, simple story. I, I think I'm underselling it, though. I think the really one thing that draws me in, in reading this is it's so conversational. And I don't just mean that as like, Oh, the writing itself is conversational. Uh, the story itself is being told as a conversation. So you've got a lot of these really interesting asides, arguments that happen. Uh, the way that they're, they're engaging are clearly between two characters who are meant to be friends, and you feel that come out in the writing. It's just uh, fantastic, fantastic to see. Okay, I think this is a good time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. This episode is brought to you by our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show, but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned story credits, you can join our email list for free at SlavicLitPod.com. Or, if you really want, you can leave us Questions, a nice review. Questions, comments, you want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at SlavicLitPod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right. Back to the romantics. Um, is there anywhere that you in particular would like to start? I think we can start at the very beginning of the story. Okay. Because it doesn't start with a conversation between friends. It doesn't start with a story. It starts with the narrator talking about how bored they are. Uh, it reminded me actually of being in, in quarantine all those years ago. Uh, <laughs> right. the, the first line of the story is, my God, what tedium. What can I do? How can I occupy myself? What am I to do with so much spare time? Books and walks, nothing but books and walks, which is kind of how I felt during COVID. So <laughs> that was funny. And then the narrator goes on to talk about how it really sucks being with all of these happy and bubbly women, 16 or 60. They're all exactly the same. Quotes that <laughs> didn't age well. Uh, <laughs> they'll be just the same for all eternity, the narrator says. And he you know, talks about how they want just a, you know, a sadder, more brooding woman, I suppose. And then it morphs into the story. So the, the fact that it starts from the sort of external narrator, who is you know, not necessarily... Uh, I mean, it, so so it says it is the, the 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 dreams of the young L, which is the name the name L dash the sort of anonymous name of the of the captain uh, of the story. 
Uh, but I just I think it's interesting to sort of start with this kind of narrative frame. I think it separates the story itself from the this intro. It sort of draws into question how Durova might have thought of herself, but it also that's sort of slippery slope territory. I think when it comes to literary analysis, uh, you could be you could read too much into it, perhaps. Um, but it is nonetheless interesting. That's where that's where I started because I forgot that that existed when I went back through to read it again, and I was like, oh, I forgot about this whole intro part. I, I forgot about the I hate women part of this uh, <laughs> of this story. <laughs> I, he's also this is this these thoughts are happening as our young L dash captain uh, is standing over. I will reiterate a grave of a friend of his, uh, Sindar Mirsky. So he's he's standing over this grave. He's thinking about how much he misses this friend who apparently died horribly, and he really just can't get away from how much how bored he is and how much he just hates seeing women. It's such a good like th- this to me. I had a really hard hard time reading this because I couldn't tell how funny it was supposed to be. Yeah, because there's this such it just feels like the the either the narrator or the uh, the author someone it just felt like someone was winking at me the whole time I was reading this. There's just such a really whimsical uh th- just the text itself is is very whimsical. The way everything is described and the way the characters talk to each other is really funny and also it it like almost seems like it has this sort of self-aware part of it where it is drawing really heavily on a lot of these romantic tropes that were super super common at this time but it it almost seems like it's it's making fun of them at times i couldn't really tell if that was the case 100 percent definitively but i don't know that's my inclination so it could be right at the very least i'm probably not 100 percent wrong and that's good enough for me it's <laughs> close enough. We're not we're not a legal case here. We don't need to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Just to... <laughs> what am I, a Slavic literature podcast host? Come on. <laughs> well, I think I know I agree in that, especially in the way that these characters are talking to each other. And this is probably something that has been lost in translation a little bit, but even if I were to read the translation, I suspect maybe some of it also is being so far in the future in reading this, it's kind of difficult to tell the tone. Uh, there's one line where um, you know, our our this captain and the, the woman are talking and they as they're talking about the Silver Springs, they, they uh, find out that this mutual doctor they both know about, Z-Dash, is the one who kind of oversees this area. And uh, the, the captain says, ah, so it's Z-Dash we're talking about. I know him. His wife's Polish. A real stunner. And then the woman responds, yes, that's the only thing he's got going for him. His wife's a real beauty. <laughs> and the captain says, just so. He's the kind of man in which there's nothing bad, but also nothing good. And, and so on. And then finally the woman says, like, oh, well, I, he does have one remarkable quality. And uh, the captain says, you mean that he's a miser? And the woman says, yes. So when I'm reading that, when I, my inclination is to read that as this kind of jesting conversation, like, oh, yes, that's the only thing he's got going for him. But as I was going past there the second time, I kind of realized you could also read this conversation completely straight. Or it's like, you've got this sort of like young captain, like, ah, oh, his wife's a real stunner. And then this woman he's talking to is a mother of two is like, yeah, that's the only thing this doctor has going for him, that his wife's a real beauty. And, you know, it, that's some of the trouble in trying to read this relationship, which does seem kind of, you know, intimate, uh, but also I, I just don't have the context to fully read the tone all the time. And that, that's a difficulty I had going through, similar to you. Less than, I think, overall, like the feeling that you're being winked at, but just trying to figure out this relationship verbally is, is difficult for me. I think it's, I think it's witty. Oh, it's, oh, for sure, witty. Yeah. I mean, as, you know, as a writer... Uh, I would, yeah, I would definitely agree. From you know, from the the 
the way the narration is is said. So I don't know. Maybe maybe the ambiguity there is is part of uh, does make it. Int- I don't know. Anyway, it's it's a strange relationship, I would say, in in some ways, just because you get this you get this really intense story that follows as part of this conversation, but you don't really get much about the people that are telling it. Right. Which is a, a really just fascinating way to kind of go about it. And it's sort of the way that it happens is as if it springs up organically in the conversation. Like, this is not a story about a story. It's a story where a story happens to show up. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that is what is so, th- that, that essence of the story was just so fun to me. I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. No, me too. Well, it's like reading a podcast happening where you've got this central tale of reason why you're here. And then these two, you know, so to speak, hosts, uh, the captain and Lazavetskaya, uh, that's her name, Lazavetskaya, who are there just chatting about, you know, they're, they're talking about later on towards the end, uh, Zayla is in the habit of, of singing quite often. She sings after, as, as the tale goes after finding Gukmore's body, she sits with him and she sings until she's, you know, no longer has a voice. Um, and they kind of get into the small debate of, oh, well, you know, how could she be a bad woman if she sang a song, which I don't entirely follow. Uh, I guess that's, <laughs> I don't entirely follow that line of logic, but that's not me for make that judgment here. And, um, and Yazavet Skaya says, no, no, no. Well, you know, the, the Cheramese people are very good at both singing and improvising at the same time. And then that leads into this kind of side debate of, of that possibility before, you know, Elizabeth Skaya finally says, no, 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 let, look, just let me finish my story, okay? And you need to hear about how Zayla dies. Uh, the guy's like, oh, she, she dies? Whoa. You know. It's, um, it kind of, it, you, you, you're kind of placed into the position of the, well, it's hard to parse. The story's narrator, L Dash, mm. who is not the one telling the story of Zayla, but who's the one telling the overall story, right? Mm. Uh, allegedly. And in, in throughout the whole story, he's interrupting. Just you know, like you know, there's sort of this this push and pull of well, it's it's late, you know, this is the end of the story, and or I don't know, we'll leave it here for now, and then the narrator butting in, oh no, we have to we have to finish the story. I, I need to know how it ends, and you know, by the end of it, that's how I was feeling too. I was like, I got I gotta know. I I, I don't know. I also felt. This is just me, the way that it's narrated felt like there was going to be a punchline at the end. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if that was, that was just a me thing. I was just waiting for s- something at the end that didn't come. Not that there needed to be anything, but like... That's how the, the narration led you. No, I, I see. I think I agree because I, I mentioned this to you beforehand. When I read it for the first time... Looking at all the asides, I was kind of searching them, maybe a little searching them too much for, you know, what, what is, you know, why, why is the narrator drawing our attention over here into this question of singing and improvisation or um, into any number of other issues they go off into, into, oh, aren't they Christian if they have, you know, these other beliefs and, and karamat and all this. Um, and now that I've gone through more, I'm less specifically focused on those in a way that it felt like, oh, that you know, there's a reason I'm being drawn over here, and now I'm trying to take it in as the whole of the format of storytelling, which just naturally involves, you know, two characters who do not have even amounts of knowledge. So as they get to certain points, they they start debating or they start talking of uh, you know these things, almost as if, uh, you know, this Lyazevetskaya uh, is is talking to you, a reader who might not be familiar with these things, and almost is engaging in a way with a reader 
uh, a lesser educated reader who's not familiar with the Cherami's people uh, with, you know, some other f- form of like, oh, this idea of singing and improvising at the same time, it almost is giving you the reader footnotes in a sense. It is, but I also do think it's sort of a leftover narrative tactic from Eugene Onegin, to be completely honest with you. Just that would have been published about six years before this. And that is still and definitely was at the time like the most influential thing that was being published. So anybody who could read who could read was reading that. Right. And the whole of Onegin is this digression, is this sort of diverting you away from the action of what's going on. And that's to me kind of how this one is moving forward as well a little bit. Hmm. Is it just sort of there's a lot of breaking in and a lot of asides, and that's what I kind of meant when I said it's sort of a story where the main story just happens to be there. Just you happen to stumble upon it. It's not the main event per se, or you know, I guess it is, but it's not like uh, it's not that it's not completely clear that that's what was going to happen because the story is called the Sulphur Spring, and the main bit of it is not about the sulfur spring really um kind of but um so i guess that's kind of is what i mean is and I, I see that relationship quite a lot and so i i don't know i haven't read all of her other stuff i would like to like i said to you before we started recording this made me want to read more and i i feel like that i you know i could see why pushkin liked it you know that's what i'm saying Absolutely. There are a lot of similarities on that level in this particular story. Definitely. I, I'm actually, I'm really curious that you bring up that, that Sulphur Spring thing, because I was tracking that. That was like, when I went to this, I, my question for myself was, why is this called the Sulphur Spring? What is it about this spring? Um, and I'm still trying to wrestle with that question, because like you said, the Sulphur Spring doesn't really matter. It's, it's just a stairway, a, a sort of way to bring us into this village, because the, the Sulphur Spring, as far as these two uh, characters are concerned. The only thing that's important there is that for a while there was a doctor in the area who was like, "Oh, I think that's got really great medical properties." And then he dies, and his successor is not as interested in you know the implications of people coming out here to for health reasons, and so he just kind of gives it up. But certain people in the know still go out there to basically do that, as as Elizabeth has done for her two children, um, which leads them into the rest of the story about you know Dukmore and uh, and and Zela. And the Sulphur Spring basically just leaves the narrative at that point. The only other real mention, I think, other than literally the, the, you know, the water being there, which is there quite often, is when the first wave of like, Russian officials go there and tell everyone, hey, good news, uh, this is about to be a great place for commerce. And everyone there is like, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, what about our river and our water? And if it dries up, where will we water our, you know, our, our, uh, our animals and all that before they you know, the officials They're pretty like, much lose. Good news, you're getting a sweet green in a microbrewery. <laughs> <You're right>. No! <laughs> also, your rent's going up. Nah, we don't pay rent. Well, we're going to have to fix that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and then it pretty much exits the narrative after that, but I'm also almost wondering in some parts of this, because, like you say, we're kind of coming into this not the same level of, of knowledge as we do with some other better-known authors, uh, if this is part of this kind of choice in, in talking about, you know, in um, this group of people where you have sort of like this familiar lead-in, uh, you know, the Sulphur Spring, like, oh, it's really, you know, oh, you know the Sulphur Spring, it's a great health 
uh, you know, great health resort area, whatever. But also there's this people there who's been there this whole time. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, kind of the river. Uh, it's <laughs> actually several cities there, it's, not cities, several towns there, several uh, areas of, of in, people inhabiting where we, uh, and, uh, you know, well, they're there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you bring up a good point in that it really it doesn't seem to form a major portion of the narrative other than a segue into the story about this sort of region. And so that to me was, and maybe again, I'm missing something, but I like that. I thought it was really clever because it, it threw me like you would not believe when I was reading this the first time. I was like, what am I reading about? <laughs> um, but I, I thought that was really, I thought that was really kind of funny, honestly, part of it. But th- this is exactly where I came to the conclusion that most of this has to be somewhat an ironic take on romanticism. Because a large part of romanticism has to do with this sort of exoticized other. Pushkin, of course, would recognize this sort of tale in his own ways. And this, I mean, you, you cannot go through the sort of Russian romantics without looking at the way that a lot of their, you know, military experience in the Caucasus and these sort of the othered regions <laughs> uh, in and around the Russian Empire form the basis of you know a lot of their work and a lot of what they view as other and there's still like there's a lot of unreconciled things going on there that uh, still have to be addressed i think Mm -hmm. or haven't adequately been addressed there but there is sort of in in here (laughs) there is a sort of uh, exoticizing of these people around the sulfur spring but there is also this this parallel that i thought which was when uh you know they're talking about how you know they're christians they're baptized they go to church they take the eucharist they keep the fast but the priest cannot eradicate the spirit of idolatry in the common people saying that they preserve the ferocity of savage peoples in their custom so like you mentioned there is this existing sort of pre-christian pagan uh, if you will, belief system that is kind of merged with or, you know, I don't want to say not eradicated from because of the connotation of the way that uh, this is still sort of maintained and not even necessarily consciously practiced, but the way that those some of those beliefs just linger. Uh, and this is still true, you know, today. Uh, the way that they linger in combination with Christianity that was generally imposed on a lot of these people. And so you have this, and they're ridiculed for this. They're ridiculed endlessly in that part uh, about their customs and how stupid they are for believing these things. Meanwhile, this lady goes to a smelly-ass spring and is slurping down sulfur water because some doctor said that it was going to make her feel better. And this is like the sickest Tolstoy, like Tolstoy wished that he could have written this, I think. <laughs> to me, this, that was like, I, I don't know if that was the point, I'll be honest with you, but to me, that was really, really funny. Where the, like part, not the whole moral of the story, but part of the moral of the story was look at how stupid, you know, the, these people are for believing in this and doing in this and why would they do that? It's so different. It's so this, it's so that. Anyways, I was there forcing my children to drink sulfur water for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and so that to me, it's almost like the punchline. 
Yeah. To part of it. Yeah. I agree. I think, well, it's, I think it's hammered home by the fact that you've got sort of like the, oh, well, you know, there's this sort of mystical people. They've got all these strange beliefs in this forest spirit, like you say, but then, you know, I'm down there because the doctor said, I got to make my children drink the sulfur water. And I think if I look, trying to find the exact passage, but for a while, the, the, the Cherimese people don't drink from this river because it tastes bad. But I think there's something, let me find the exact line where like, eventually they are like, well, I don't think anyone's dying from it. So seems like it's fine so you have well, the, the kids were like i i hate it when you yeah. have to go there and they and we had to drink the water right. like why do we have to drink the water <laughs> right right uh, but yeah so like the the Chinese people like the supposedly like the people who are close to very you know heavy quote savage are the ones who have this sort of pra- practical like doesn't taste good but it you know it's water it's here that's good enough versus people traveling you know 80, I don't know, I don't remember, a verse isn't one to one with a mile, but it's not far off. So 80-something miles to go (laughs) make your children cry and drink sulfur water. Right, which, so so that to me, I I don't know 100%, I can't say, is that the point. It's a point for sure, and it's a funny one. Yeah. And that to me is where I struggled, because there is the internal battle, I thought, between the sort sort of colonialism debate, you could say. Uh, on this, you could argue that on one hand, the story kind of decenters the traditional provincial tale, which is kind of how it, it sort of starts as just here's a couple of aristocrats chatting about, you know, going on vacation and their medical treatments and having dinners and whatever it's going to be. And then it takes a turn that is is overtaken by. Uh, this sort of group that's on the more peripheral side of the Russian Empire, uh, and, and you can see this too, right? The characters are there's only there's only one I think or two named characters. One of them's dead, like you said, in in the first layer of the story before we get into the the the, the retelling part. Yeah, uh, it's just Sendomirsky and Lyazaveta. Right, and so you you could make this argument persuasively, I think, and you can also make this argument that. You know, basically, the the retelling is kind of a constraining role that these uh, people are really allowed to play, you know, even mm. named or not. They're essentially falling into almost this sort of noble savage sort of archetype uh, where they're, you know, almost... They're almost... It's hard to say. They're almost borderline not individuals they almost fit like i said this this archetype this sort of i I don't know mythic this tale of mythic proportions right uh and they hit these certain plot points that is just this sort of peak romantic you know you have a duel you have early lost love you have all of these things that kind of would fit this really typical you know romantic model but it is set in just this, uh, you know, quote unquote exotic place. And so there's a lot of convincing arguments to be made. That one is more convincing to me. But the thing that draws me back from it, right, is just this, this, you know, is it being poked fun at? Hmm. And that's what I can't 100% sort of come down on on this. But that's also kind of what I like about it. I, th- I think it's a, it's a strength of it. I think so too. I think, I mean, that's one of the things that going back through that there's all these 
I guess elements, like I said, each time I, I go back through, there's a different set of elements that I pay more attention to. And I don't think it's some sort of like, I don't know, um, you know, like a crime, like one, like a, um, like one of those crime novels, basically every piece of evidence leads to somewhere. It all means something and all ties in some way. I, I don't, that's not the case here. Each piece is simply part of this life that they're all living. And, it, but I think that that makes it more enjoyable going back through and trying to read this as just a bunch of a sort of lives and, and, or these people, Liza Vitskaya and, and the captain sort of trying to convey life and all these things that they go off onto the side and to talk about. Um, but there's something to be said for the fact that this is also a, you know, this, uh, the Chermis people are only being reflected through Lezovitskaya's telling of them. So, and I don't, this is not intentional. I don't, I don't like, this is like intentionally like, oh, this is a simplification of people because it's being told by, you know, a person that's far away, not, you know, not knowing of the area, but it, it does. And like you mentioned, I, it sits in this weird place where it, it does seem to decenter, right? Like the, the core of empire, the core peoples of empire, but these other, um, uh, peoples are still being understood through their own eyes which is not necessarily a criticism of this I, you I, how could you ask you know a, a, a russian author to have a completely you know like so to speak native understanding of other peoples um but that is in fact that does get replicated by the nature of who this, who's telling the story here so it, it this also is an is an unclear question to me is what is being told is it an oral retelling or is it not? And it seems to me that it is written because I found the line that I was so dutifully searching for <laughs> right towards the end uh, where Lyazovitskaya is saying, I wouldn't want to have to tell that story again for as long as I live. She said this at last as she stood up from the sofa and put away her work. And that to me insinuates that she's reading perhaps a, sto a story that's not hers. Mm. Uh, where the story comes from, I don't know. She's able to recount in you know pristine crystal detail the the story that Zela is singing or the the song that she's singing, and it's it's pretty long. I don't know, like you know what I'm saying. Like I get that this is maybe like picking too much. It just it'd be kind of a lot. It was a really well constructed story. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it it seems to me that you you know is she. Is this real? Did this really happen to her? Is this something that she's pretending that she did? She write it down, or is this you know someone else's story that she's literally stealing and saying, "Oh, whoa, you never would believe what happened to me." <laughs> yeah, it, it's not one hundred percent clear to me. Right, right. That's a good question. I was almost wondering if that was just she was like doing something with her hands, and that's what it refers to in the story. But I, I'm going back through it. I don't see any reference to her doing anything. So that is a good. That's a good question. Hmm. That, you know, honestly, as you said, that, that, could, that could make a lot of sense, too. <laughs> um, but the way that it was worded kind of struck me, and I thought, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but the, the fact that it is, you know, could, I guess, be read either way is, again, kind of interesting. Right. Uh, or it's not interesting, I don't know. It, it could be, depending whether or not we find a reference to Lezovitskaya doing something else. Yeah, I think, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff where I think there's an unusual amount for this one where we're still like, I don't know, we're still digesting it, which is maybe not the best place to be when we're recording, but I think to fully come to a conclusion on this story might be missing the for forest for the trees a little bit, is where I am currently at in, in, <laughs> in this read-through, as I and I am going through and I am 
really enjoying the storytelling style and the characterization um, and sort of this retelling of this possibly ironic joke of of iron of of romantic tropes for its era um it is a very well constructed read very solid piece of characterization yeah I, i'm always amazed at, at people who can write things where it is well constructed but the the intent is to not seem constructed that's fascinating to me and my other unresol- unresolved question still is what what is the relationship between these people to stay up all night talking to a married woman with kids in her own home right at this time that's a little strange yes yeah i i, I know they were you know friends maybe talking in jest but a lot of it seemed like it could also be read as very flirtatious and so i don't know all i'm saying is that there is quite a lot going on here <laughs> well I think you know, I think that is an interesting question because it's as it's mentioned. So they they have uh, dinner. L or the captain and uh, Elizabeth Skaya have dinner with with her husband Lezovitsky, uh, which also I have to say a very interesting the the way that characters. Um, oh, there is a third one, third third Russian character named Misha, uh, their son. Uh, very interesting. The naming convention here, where typically if you look at these things, and this is something I've tried to avoid, but I, this is a pattern I fall into all too often. Um, more often than not, men are identified by their last name, and women are identified by their first name. So I think it's very interesting here the sort of equality given to this married couple, where uh, they're not—you don't even know their first names—they're they're Lazovetskaya and Lazovetsky. Um, I think that's interesting characterization, especially against the captain. You know, not that having L dash is abnormal, but I think that that's an interesting choice here no it's it's nothing is necessarily abnormal per se but it, it is interesting to me if something i was picking at without coming to much fruition but just who who gets named mm-hmm. and when what that really means for the story i don't know what it means exactly or how much it means but it is interesting it is interesting. I find what I was talking about, going back to the point where like, hey, is this, what's their relationship where it's mentioned um, when they're having dinner, uh, Lezbetsky kind of dismissively like, oh, well, you know, you're 25, so you're basically over the hill. Um, and <laughs> Lezbetskaya is like, well, you know, you've given away, what is it? Uh, well, she basically tells him, well, we'll see about that, huh? And uh, L, the captain here, is just sitting across the table staring at her, and it's like, uh, Elizabeth Sky was so sweet and looked at him so kind-heartedly with her dark blue eyes and smiled so angelically. Elle was only 24. He moved his chair back again. So it's really not essential to the narrative. It's this possibly romantic overtone here. It really isn't addressed. It's just a feature of it. It's uh, just part of these kind of... Uh, you only get this in the first layer of the story where it's not being told between themselves and therefore kind of being more taken in like a more intentional narrative. But I think it's a cool of characterization that those are just features of the life which don't necessarily mean anything but it they don't have to have a meaning for the story because that's just fleshing out who they are for it yeah i mean it's not uncommon or actually quite common for young cavalry officers to try to seduce and sleep with older married women that was like a that was a pretty common occurrence of something that was that was trying to somebody was trying to have happen and so that sort of fact of life uh, is interesting, again, layered on top of everything. Yeah, definitely. This last 
bit that I just wanted to mention was that so much of so much of literature and literature at this time and talking about romanticism it's it's all about this sort of love lost a lot of it, it you know revolves around this people dying in duels early uh the sort of just you know what it what it means to live where you have simultaneously nothing to do yet feel such loss so, so intensely and have nowhere for any of those emotions to go but it's just interesting that that it goes with the the secondary story you don't really get any of it on this first layer you get like maybe some flirtatious undertones but that's kind of this is sort of it and so it 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 is interesting the way it works because it sort of transfers that level of romanticism it it almost uses it as a device in the in the story of the story you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. so y- you only experience it like second hand almost it's very a very strange effect um i, I felt like while reading this yeah I don't know if that makes sense 100%, but this is kind of my ruminations on this. Christopher Nolan of a short story. <laughs> a very ruminatory piece. Yeah, I, I love that part at the end where there's a where she takes a, 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 a quarter and she spins it to see if it stops spinning and then it, and then it <laughs> cuts right, the story cuts right before you know whether it stops or not. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all we had to say about this. I think there's more to say about it. I feel like after we've already read it a couple times each, but I feel like we're going to go back to it, read it a couple more times and have a conversation about it and be like, we missed this part. There's something that was just looking us right in the face here because there's, there's just a lot of threads to follow. And it's, it's, it is just like we said, a well-constructed, enjoyable piece. That's super easy. Sometimes you finish a piece for this podcast and it's like, Oh, that was good, but I, I'm glad I'm done. And this one, I was like, I want to go back through and read it again. I'm, I just this like one's still actively this. bothering me as I'm finishing up thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, if you can track this down, we were reading this out of Russian women's shorter fiction in anthology, 1835 through 1860, translated by Joe Andrew. So, consider uh, taking a look at that or uh, other locations if you can find them. Definitely worth the read. It was good. It might be a little bit hard to find, but it's it's good if you can track it down. And if you read anything else by Durova, please let me know if you liked it. Join our Discord and let me know if you liked it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And read uh read the assorted extra reading either in the prep guide if you are a paying listener or if you are simply listening, uh check out our show notes for that article we mentioned. Definitely worthwhile engaging with when you're approaching uh when you're approaching the work. All right, Matt, uh, before we completely wrap up for the day, uh, before, well, before we wrap up, go back to reading and then come back and have a second conversation, I have to ask you, what are we tackling in our next episode? Next episode, we are going to be reading and talking with a translator. Very exciting. We're going to be reading Sergei Gonlevsky's Ochre and Rust, which was translated recently by Philip Metris, who is a phenomenal translator, a very kind guest we've already recorded this episode so i know for a fact he is uh and it was a really good conversation that we had so i really hope that you will listen to that next week 
Uh, if you're planning on reading along with us, be sure to pick up your copy through our affiliate links on our website, or you can buy it directly from Greenland and Press. Absolutely. And you should pick it up. It is, I know we're already talking about good literature today. We only talk about good literature in this podcast, I guess. Uh, also well worth the read. Really interesting. Talking I guess. to. What is that resounding vote of confidence? <laughs> <your own> show, <laughs> <man>? <laughs> I guess. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it was great to read and great to talk to, to Philip about it. And as Matt said, fantastic. Very nice guest. Very informative guest. Every guest we have on here is a good guest, I would say. I don't, I don't think we've ever had a bad guest, I think, as reflects and um, as reflects and as, as in listening, I hope. But Philip was definitely one of the ones where even after we finished recording, it was like hard to get off and, and get away outside of just chatting. So that was a great conversation. Looking forward to getting that out to all of you. Me too. And if you want to help keep our show independent and you like the content that we are producing, and maybe you want some really exclusive access to our notes containing all of the research that went into this episode and every episode head on over to our website slaviclitpod.com the music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peromotka you can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify the links and spelling are in the show notes you'll hear from us again soon hey, 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 hey.